Now, we've been studying through the patriarch Jacob. And this morning we are here in our fourth study, Genesis chapter 29. The title of our message here today is The School of Sowing and Reaping. I read about a young man who was absolutely smitten by a girl that he went to school with. The problem was that she was not interested. Uh, This girl wouldn't give the fella the time of day. So he decided that the way to this girl's heart was through the mail. And so he began to write her old-fashioned, handwritten love letters. And he wrote a love letter every week and like clockwork. On Monday afternoon for several weeks when she checked her mail, there was a love letter. But her heart still remained cold as ice. And she did not respond. And so the boy thought, well, I'll increase my output to two letters a week. But again, even though he was writing two a week, there was still no response. And so finally the young man became desperate. And he thought, well, I'm going to write a letter every day until she gets the message. And in total, the man had written over a hundred love letters to this young lady to try and woo her heart. But after several months of this letter-writing campaign, the man noticed that the letters were coming back to him with return to sender stamped on them. So he did a little investigation, and he found out that the woman had moved. In fact, she changed address, and much to his heartbreak, uh, she had fallen in love and married the mailman. <laughs> now, I tell you that story to say that not all love stories end up happily ever after, do they? Jacob's certainly didn't. There was no fairy tale ending for this prodigal patriarch. In fact, I would argue to you this morning that Jacob's love life was fraught with just as much reaping as there was romance. Now in Genesis 29, we have a record of how he met and married his wives. Yes, you heard that right, plural, wives. And no offense to our ladies here today, but there is a biblical principle that two women under one roof is a recipe for trouble. By the way, every instance that the Bible does record of polygamy, it is always a warning of what not to do. Now, when we last left Jacob, he had just received that stunning dream of the ladder coming from heaven down to earth, angels ascending and descending upon it. He had heard the promise of God that the Lord was going to give to him that covenant blessing and go with Jacob wherever he sojourned. And so as Jacob left that place which he named Bethel, house of God, You can bet that he felt ten feet tall and bulletproof for heaven had just smiled down on the old boy. But you know that God was not done with Jacob at that point. As the title of our series tells us, this man was just as much a schemer as he was a dreamer. And the man who had weaseled his birthright away from his brother and conned his father needed some serious schooling in the spiritual disciplines. And so this chapter, Genesis 29, is an Old Testament illustration of a New Testament truth from Galatians 6-7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that shall he also reap. All the lying and the conniving and the manipulating that has characterized Jacob's life is about to come back upon him like a boomerang. Jacob doesn't know it yet, 
But class is about to be in session because as he heads for the land of Haran, he's about to be enrolled in a 20-year school of sowing and reaping. Now we're going to notice three scenes out of the life of Jacob this morning. Number one, we are going to notice Jacob lingering by a well. Jacob lingering by a well. We're beginning in chapter 29 and verse 1. And we'll read down to verse 9. Join me if you will. And then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered, and the stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And see, Rachel his daughter is coming with the sheep. And he said, Behold, it is still high day, it is... Not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and, and go and pasture them. Maybe Jacob wants them to go ahead and do that and leave so that he can have Rachel all to himself. And then the Bible says in verse 8, But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. And while he was speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, if you read between the lines here of this story, you can see the invisible hand of God's providence. Now, remember, providence is the hand of God in the glove of human events. The Bible says that the steps of a righteous man or woman are ordered by the Lord. It's no accident that Jacob has arrived here at just the right time. Here he has encountered some shepherds at this well. He asked them for directions of how to get to Laban's and at that very moment, a beautiful, shapely young woman is walking toward the well with the sheep. And it just so happened to be Rachel, Laban's daughter. And when Jacob laid eyes on this beautiful woman, sparks flew. It was love at first sight. And by the way, don't miss how Jacob begins to turn on the charm. Verse 10. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the mouth of that well and watered the flock of Laban and his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father, Oh my, is he pouring on the charm thick and heavy. Here is Jacob. He wants to impress Rachel with his strength. And so he single-handedly manhandles that heavy stone from the well, pushes it aside so that she can water the sheep. He's still conning, isn't he? Because we know who the real Jacob is. He's a homebody. He's a mama's boy. This guy's never done an honest day's labor in his life. But when he sees a woman of his dreams coming down the way... Why, he summons all the strength that he has to impress her. And by the way, most of you ladies can attest to this. Uh, most men are on their best behavior early on in the relationship, uh, well before the cracks begin to show and you see the real man. 
And so this is the put-on that I believe Jacob is having here with Rachel. Now this meeting between Jacob and Rachel, doesn't it not feel like a case of deja vu? Haven't we been here before where love is found beside a well? Rachel's sudden appearance would have struck a familiar chord in Jacob's heart. Because if you know your Bible, Genesis 24, his mother, Rebekah, met Abraham's servant, Eleazar, who was searching for a wife for Abraham's son, Isaac. And so, that's the emotional mountaintop that Jacob, as he sees this beautiful woman arriving there by the well, he thinks this is a match made in heaven, and the Bible says he lays a kiss on her. A big, wet one. And this was love at first sight. By the way, this scene reminds me of a story that I one time heard about a little brother. And if you have a little brother, don't you know they're always there to stir up trouble, especially with older sisters. Well, this younger brother was eavesdropping on his sister who was talking on the telephone one evening. She was talking to a girlfriend, and she was saying that I'm expecting at the end of my date tonight that my boyfriend is going to kiss me. Well, the little brother, when he heard that, he snickered and he thought, surely there's a way I can get involved in the middle of all this excitement. And so the little boy, he noticed the headlights coming up the driveway. The, the boy and the sister were coming home from their date. He scurried outside, climbed up to the top of the tall oak tree there overlooking the, the front door of the house. And the boy and the girl, they got there to the front door. They were saying their goodbyes. And he awkwardly asked her, he said, may I kiss you goodnight? Of course, this girl coming from a good Christian family, she said, let me pray about it. And so she closed her eyes and she lifted her head and she said, Father, Father, up above, should I kiss the one I love? And about that time, brother heard it in the trees and he yelled down, Sister, sister, down below, pucker up and let her go. <laughs> Whoa, oh my goodness. We have sparks flying here in Genesis 29. We have love in the air. Jacob lingering by a well. Now we see number two, Jacob laboring for a wife. Jacob laboring for a wife. Begin with me again in verse 13. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into the house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone of my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall be your wages? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel and, and said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give you to her then I should give her away to any other man. Stay with me. And so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Now, keep in mind that God has brought Jacob to Haran, not only to get a wife, but so that he may meet this man named Laban. Up to this point, Jacob has lived by his wits. He has survived by relying on his shrewdness, on his cunning. He's a manipulator of people and situations. And all that now is about to change as he meets his match in this man named Laban. Through the wiles of Laban, God is going to give Jacob a painful course 
a Ph.D. in sowing and reaping. Now, picture the scene here. Jacob and Laban sit down at the bargaining table. They are going to negotiate a deal. Jacob says, I'll work seven years for your beautiful younger daughter, Rachel. I want her hand in marriage. I'll do whatever it takes. Meanwhile, keep in mind that Jacob has no dowry. He has nothing but the clothes on his back. And so he thinks this is probably a pretty good way that I can get some experience, build my own wealth, and get the girl of my dreams. Laban hears this offer. And old Laban, the wheels start going in his mind. Dollar signs pop up in his eyes. Here is Jacob. He's punch drunk in love. He is susceptible. He is highly exploitable. And when Laban did the math in his head, seven years of labor, basically making him an indentured servant, that sounded pretty good for a daughter. But what Jacob did not know at this point was the fine print in the contract. So these men, they seal the deal. But the Bible says there was another daughter in the situation to complicate the matter. Leah is Rachel's older sister. And we aren't really sure. Scholars haven't really determined what is meant by that description in our text that Leah's eyes were weak or maybe your translation might say delicate. Whatever the case, what we can know is that Rachel outshined Leah in terms of outward beauty. There was no comparison. Rachel is a knockout and Leah is, well, just homely. By the way, as I read this and studied it, I thought about my own romance experience. It reminds me of when Caitlin and I were dating. Before I came calling, she'll be quick to tell you that she had gone through a couple of dating experiences that didn't end very well. She had encountered a couple of immature guys. And that caused her to produce her now infamous list. And if I haven't told you about the list, here's the story behind it. It was two pages of spiritual and character qualifications that said, if you can't meet these qualifications, you cannot be my man. You cannot be my husband. So about on our second or third date, I had already figured up in my mind that this was it. This is the girl. There was nobody else in the world. And uh, she and I went on our date. And by the way, she reminded me the other day, do you remember the first time that you held my hand? And she said, that was also on the night when you held my hand that I gave you the list. So we ended up on our date. It was a great time. Sparks were flying. Love was in the air. Uh, boy, it was awesome. And then at the end of the date, she said, I've got to talk to you about something. And she laid on me that two pages of list. And she said very directly to me, she said, if you cannot meet the qualifications on this list, then we just need to stop right here and there because I won't go any further. And I opened that list and I looked at it and went down top to bottom, front and back, and I looked back at her and I said, I am your list, praise God. I don't care if I have to work seven years. I'm getting this woman, praise God. Well, and then I had to meet Dad. Then I had to meet the family. And, and, and I, as I asked for Caitlin's hand in marriage sometime later, Dad laid on me the assignment. He said, if you want my daughter's hand in marriage, he said, I want you to write me an essay and tell me why you are qualified to take my place. I said, I do that every week. It's called a sermon. I'll write you a book if I have to. Uh, you just thought... 
it was hard to back, pass a background check. Buddy, I got looked over with a fine-tooth comb. It's easier to get in the FBI background check than it is to get in that Rogers family. But praise God, I'm telling you, when you meet the woman and you know that it's heaven sent and that it's God's match for you, you'll do whatever you have to. You'll lie, cheat, beg, and steal if you're in love to get the girl. So I understand Jacob's situation here in this text. And the Bible summarizes Jacob's seven years of labor with one of the most romantic phrases in the Bible. Do you read that in verse 20? And so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. What a beautiful phrase. Hey, I don't think Bill Shakespeare could do any better than that right there. Friend, if you read that verse and you say, I don't understand it, it's because you've never been in love before. Old Jake, here he is. He's counting down the days. Can you picture it? He's got the days marked off in his tent. He's drawing closer to the day when the wedding bells are going to ring. And he's going to get the girl of his dreams. Oh, but friend, he got a whole lot more than what he bargained for, didn't he? Because we see, number one, Jacob lingering by well, and then Jacob laboring for a wife, and then I want you to see this. Here's the turn in the story. Number three, Jacob learning about his ways. Remember I told you this was a school of sowing and reaping. Notice here verse 21 as we read our story again. And then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he, he went into her. And Laban gave his female servant Zilpha and his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Why did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete this week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. And when Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife, Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now, as you read this text, obviously there are all kinds of questions that come up in your mind, like how in the world could something like this happen? Well, if you're following the modern American wedding customs, no man could be fooled this way. But you need to keep in mind that the Near Eastern ancient traditions were very different than ours today. Weddings during this time followed a distinct pattern. There was great feasting and merrymaking for up to a week. One custom observed that on the night of the wedding feast, the groom went to his tent and sat there in darkness and waited for the heavily veiled bride to be escorted in by an elaborate procession. And upon her delivery into the groom's abode, the marriage would then be consummated. And this is the model that they were following in the time of Jacob. And by the way, that word feasting that's used in the text is a very interesting Hebrew word. As you study it out, you realize that this was a feasting that was synonymous with lots of wine. 
So now you can begin to put together the picture. In fact, one scholar explained it this way. Evidently, Laban used the veiling of the bride, the lateness of the hour, and likely much wine to affect the switch. And it worked perfectly. As to what Laban did to restrain Rachel, this scholar said, we do not know. Boy, wouldn't you like to know? And more, Leah had to be a most willing bride. She must have loved Jacob too and likely despised her beautiful sister. It was a most heartless and cruel trick that proved to be divine poetic justice for now the deceiver was deceived. Now notice here, Laban had figured out a way to keep his most valuable worker with him for seven more years. And you see, he didn't tell Jacob about the fine print in his original contract. Did Laban say earlier that he would give Rachel? No, he said, better that I give her to you than the other man. He didn't promise Rachel the first time. Because of tradition, Laban cited this custom where they could not marry the younger daughter who was Rachel before the older daughter, which was Leah, and so he says, you want the girl of your dreams, you sign the dotted line for seven more years. My, my. And with that, <laughs> Jacob has now inherited one of the most dysfunctional families in all of the Bible. You just thought you belonged to a crazy, sideways, redneck family. Friend, you ain't got nothing on what Jacob has just gotten himself into. He has two jealous sisters as wives. There's favoritism in the midst of all this. One is loved more than the other, and it was no secret. And if you keep reading, you find out that Leah is actually able to give Jacob six sons, and Rachel, the beloved one, is barren. That only increased the turmoil and the tension in this household, and it doesn't end there. Along with each wife comes two handmaidens. The Bible tells us their names were Bilhah and Zilpha. And before it's all over, Jacob has four women living under one tent. And friend, that is a recipe for ending up on Dr. Phil as a mess. You say, gosh preacher, what a story. No, it didn't come from Hollywood. No, it's not in the tabloids. It's in the Holy Bible. Why is it there? That's the question. So what? What does this have to do with me? Well, there's at least two applications that I want you to see from this text as it applies to our lives today. The first one is this. Please write it down. We don't fully understand the consequences of our sin until God lets us experience the pain our sin has caused others. That's the first lesson that we see here. At last, now Jacob knows what it is like to be on the deceiving end of the equation. He has been embarrassed, he has been snookered, and now he understands the pain that he has brought upon his father and his brother. You see, Jacob's strength was in deception, and so God allowed him to be humbled at the point of his strength. In fact, if you study this story what you realize is a great irony takes place in the tent that wedding night. For in every way that Jacob deceived Esau and Isaac, Jacob was deceived by Laban. Think of it, friend. Just as Jacob deceived Isaac by taking advantage of his old age and his blindness, 
So Laban deceived Jacob by taking advantage of the darkness of the tent and the veiling of the bride, the wine that was heavy on his breath. Jacob had deceptively pretended to be the older brother. And now Laban tricked him by replacing the younger with the older. So what Jacob did to Isaac and Esau, Laban now does to Jacob. And what I want you to see from this, friend, is that you don't understand how bad sin hurts other people until you are on the receiving end of that, having been given a dose of your own medicine. That's the law of sowing and reaping. Do not be deceived. God is not marked for whatsoever a man sows. That will he reap. Friend, the law of sowing and reaping is just as immutable as the law of gravity. You always reap what you sow. You reap later than you sow. You reap more than you sow. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a life. Sow a life, reap a destiny. Remember what the old preachers used to say? Sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It'll teach you more than you wanted to know. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. I know people who have lived this principle. I know men who cannot enjoy an intimate relationship with their wife because they sowed the seed of pornography early on in their days and it has destroyed their marriage. I know addicts who've taken every kind of drug possible and now later in their years their body is racked with all kinds of problems. I know men in the ministry who sabotage themselves because they sowed foolishly in their ministry and now because of shame and sin they're out of a job not able to pastor or preach oh friend the sowing and reaping principle is so true and God let it come down on Jacob's head listen to this Robert Watson Watt he's not exactly a household name he was one of the most important figures in World War II he wasn't a military man he wasn't a politician, but he was a scientist. In the 1930s, he was commissioned by the British government to see if he could develop a technology that would alert the military of incoming German planes. This man, Watt, invented a tracking system using radio waves that bounced off of objects and reported their movement on a small screen. The name that he coined for this was Radio Detection and Ranging, or you and I know it today as Radar. Well, he invented this. Several years after the war, Watt was vacationing in Canada. He wasn't paying attention to how fast he was driving. And so here comes the sirens and here comes the lights. He was pulled over and given a ticket. The Mountie got his man and he was stung by the irony of being pulled over by the police with a piece of equipment that he himself had created. He wrote a little poem like this pity sir robert watson watt strange target of this radar plot and thus with others i can mention a victim of his own invention friend that's what sin is that's what happens when you sow it early on in your life if you're a child of god god will not let his children sin successfully he will allow them to feel the sting and the hurt and the pain of sin because if we don't feel it we'll never learn about repentance we'll never learn about the greatness of his mercy and grace yes god can forgive yes god can give you a second chance yes god can restore 
unto you the years which the locust has eaten, but God will not remove the consequences of a painful decision made in sin. He'll let us feel the pain of it. Because that's sowing and reaping. Psalm 119, David said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. So, the first principle that we learn here, when we don't understand the consequences of our sin until God lets us experience the pain that that sin has caused others, Jacob now knows what it's like to be on the raw deal end of things. Then I see this, and I'm closing. Here it is. Life's worst disappointments must drive us to greater dependency upon God. You say, what do you mean, preacher? For the second time in his life, Jacob has now felt the bitter taste of disappointment. He got the blessing from his brother, but it led to nothing but ruin and brokenness in that relationship. Now he thinks he's about to get the girl of his dreams. And at the last second, the rug is pulled out from under him. He worked. He waited patiently for seven years. And on the morning after the wedding, he wakes up. And it's Leah. He goes to Laban. He says, how could you do this to me? By the way, that's the same words that Isaac said when he realized that he'd been fooled by Jacob. What is this you've done to me? Everybody in this story except Laban wakes up the day after that wedding totally dissatisfied with life. Right? Listen, there is no greater letdown in life than to have worked so hard for something and then just when you're about to get it, you discover it's not what I thought it would be. Disappointment with life is a universal pain. Who hasn't lived through this before? You thought to yourself, if I could just get this person to love me and see my real value, they will think I'm worth something and then they don't love you the way that you thought that they would. You thought to yourself, if I can get that degree, I'll prove to all those people back home that I am somebody, that I'm not stupid. It didn't get what you thought it would. You thought, if I get this career, I'll be fulfilled. If I can get the penthouse suite and the, uh, climb up the corporate ladder, then I'll get some respect. If I get that pile of money or that truck or that place at the lake, it will bring me happiness and contentment. And friend, disappointment runs through life. It's like drinking salt water. Because everything in this world runs on the law of diminishing returns. It's cursed by sin. Thought I was going to marry this person. And he done me wrong. You ever been there before? Somebody did something terrible to you. Betrayed you. Stabbed you in the back. And you felt so broken, so disappointed. You thought, how can I even go on? But notice here. Jacob does something honorable. For the first time in his life, he does something honorable. He fulfills his obligations. He doesn't go try and renegotiate with Laban. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't cast aside Leah. He kept Leah and patiently worked another seven years for Rachel. Jacob accepted the disappointment and moved on with his life. You see what I'm saying here? How could he do that? 
Because in Genesis chapter 28, the previous chapter, he had met God Almighty at a place called Bethel. And God gave him a promise and said, Jacob, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what they do to you, no matter what you do or fail to do, I will go with you. And friend, the only way you can make it through life's disappointments is remember the promise of God that He has given you. I still love you. I still have a purpose for you. My plan's not thwarted by the evil things that people have done to you. You just trust me. Amen. Jacob made it through that terrible betrayal because he had a promise of God that God was going to bless him despite how dark and sordid and messed up this story is so when disappointment strikes in your marriage and you wake up one day and you think who am I married to who is this person when the job doesn't pan out and God closes the door when your plans for ministry don't work out, though, you think you're going to be Billy Graham preaching before thousands and you can't even get a dozen to come listen to your Sunday school message. What you have to do with the disappointment is soak it in and realize, hey, I've got a God in heaven who said He would bless me. I've got a God in heaven who knows me. I've got a God in heaven who showed up at that desolate place and said, I'm here. I'm with you. Don't give up in the disappointment of life. Keep walking with me. You will see greater things. And friend, you have to have faith that God allowed the disappointment and that God is going to use the disappointment for something greater in your life that you can't imagine. That's how you get through it. One man who experienced great disappointment was a missionary by the name of George Smith. Listen to this man. He accepted a call to the mission field. He spent years raising his funds. He prepared for several years. And then he went to the jungles of Africa. When he arrived, he faced terrible opposition. Sickness and starvation and persecution drove him back to England just a short time. When he left for Africa, he came home and he said, I only had one convert. All of that, he said, I only won one little widow lady to Jesus. He went home heartbroken. They found him sick and he had died kneeling in prayer. That's how they found him. Probably a man who died of a broken heart. Everybody said his ministry is a disappointing failure. Well, several years after George Smith died, another group of missionary explorers said, we'll go back to the area where he was at in Africa, and let's just see. So they found his little hut. They found a copy of his Bible that he had left behind, and they were able to track down the one little widow lady that he had won to Jesus. And they were shocked to discover that several other villages had converted to Christ because this woman had gone out and shared her faith with others. The story doesn't end there. A hundred years after the death of George Smith, the Moravian missionaries counted more than 13,000 living converts who had sprung from the ministry of George Smith. That disappointment of one soul was multiplied thousands and thousands. 
Friend, that's the benefit of hindsight is that God gives us the ability to see a disappointment as a divine appointment. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That God sovereignly weaves our sin and our setbacks into a larger tapestry. God knows to make a beautiful melody, it takes major chords and it takes minor chords. And think about this, even through this dysfunctional mess, this is a messed up family. Can I get a witness? But God was working. You see, through these wives, Jacob is going to have 13 children. 12 sons and one daughter. And through Leah, the wife that Jacob did not want, God is going to bring six sons, one of whom will be named Judah, and from Judah will be the line leading all the way to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer of this world. Friend, you say my life is messed up, God can't use me. You say my past, you don't know it, it's so broken. There's no way God could redeem it. Hey, have you read this Bible? God used Noah, he was a drunk. He used Abraham. He was a liar. He used Jacob. He was a trickster. He used Moses who was a killer. Oh friend, God uses broken people. And God uses evil in messed up situations because He's sovereign. And He knows how to work good out of that evil. You see, as you read this story, you think, man, I'm, where's the hero? Where's the silver lining? Oh, but friend, He was coming. Uh, several hundred years down the way, His name was Jesus Christ. And when He came into the human race, you go read it in Matthew 1, He has the most embarrassing people in His ancestral line. Because Leah and Jacob and Rachel are right there in the middle of it all. And so if God can use this broken, messed up family, if God can use this trickster, friend, what can He do with your broken life? Oh, you just give it to Him. And you trust Him. And He'll make something beautiful out of those ashes. He'll take what's broken and messed up and say, I'm glad you finally gave it to me because now I can do something with it. Friend, listen to me today. God is sovereignly working in the most broken and weird evil situations. God is there. Even when I don't see it, He's working. Right? Hey, as we're standing right now, Preston's coming to lead us. Our musicians are getting ready. I hope that you see the gospel in all of this. That there's a great God, Jesus Christ, who can take all of that evil and sin and take it upon Himself and He can redeem a lost and broken world. And a man like Jacob can be a part of that salvation story that God is writing.